0: Okay, and welcome to Versify, the poetry, what is it called? The Poetry in English Literature podcast. And um, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, I'm joined, uh, as always, by Robin. Rob?
1: Hello, everybody, and it's a special edition.
0: (laughs) It is indeed a very special edition. Um, I don't know whether we need like a whole new strand for this. This could be like the... Anyway, it is a very special edition because um, we've got um, a poet with us this morning. And that is... uh, (laughs) And we're going to hear from uh, very shortly. Um, Welcome, May Black.
2: Hello there.
0: Well, thanks very much for coming on the pod. May, Uh, you are in fact the first, um, you know, uh, as it were, subject of a uh, poet, author of poems that we've had. Normally, we, we, normally we do dead people, (laughs) Um, so it's good that uh, it's good that uh, we've got a live poet here. Um, May one of the things we're interested in on um, Diversify Pod is kind of you know, poets' kind of experience with the poet in question. And um, that's a slightly tautologist question to ask you. Um, but what I was going to ask you instead was, I wonder if you could just begin by saying a little bit about how you, uh, your relationship with poetry, how you sort of came to poetry and sort of the, the the pathway that you took to to have the relationship with poetry that you've got today.
2: Well, my mum was a high school English teacher, so there was always lots of poetry and books around the house. And at the age of about 10, she made a family poetry book called uh, From Little Acorns. So we all put poems into that. And my brother and sister are much more intelligent and older than me. So I kind of had to write a lot to kind of keep up with them. So it started at a young age. Uh, I did English literature degree. So uh, obviously that involved reading a lot. And then I run creative writing groups. Uh, I've been doing that for 10 years, exactly 10 years this June. And I'm always disappointed that most of the people that come to my writing groups, if I say, hey, everyone, let's have a poetry week, um, there's looks of horror around the table. <laughs> so I kind of inflict it on them anyway. But luckily, with um, with lockdown, I started doing Zooms, and I managed to um, attract quite a lot of poets. So I was running weekly poetry classes on zoom so I kind of you know was doing a lot of poetry and then the book came to me from that period so yeah okay well that's that,
0: kind of my journey okay well that, that that's interesting we can drill down on some of that in a, in, a, in a bit but I just wanted to so you mentioned the book um, that 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 you've got out um do you want to sort of say a bit of, because I mean it's such a huge thing to um you know, obviously you sort of, uh, I'll put it this way, one one day you were standing there, there was no book. Some indeterminate period of time later, there was a book. Um, what sort of happened in between? Please
1: fill in the blanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, so the, the writing groups I run, I run under the title of Suffolk Writers Group, because I live in Suffolk. And there's a Facebook group. And uh, again, over lockdown, we set each other daily challenges. And um, one of the challenges was to write as a historical character. And I've always been massively into history. So history and literature were always the things I enjoyed most at school. Um, so I chose Anne Boleyn. I've always felt a connection with Anne Boleyn. I think she had a bad time of it. So to, I wrote say, to say her, the least, wrote,
1: I would say. <laughs> Go on. To say the least, she had a bad time. <laughs>
2: yeah, so, yeah, so I wrote a poem as her and then I did uh, and then I was inspired and I wrote one again, Helen of Troy, I think, has always had a bad time, although she's probably fictitious. But anyway, but um, and like I said, I know a lot of teachers. My mum's a teacher and my mum said, God, I wish I'd had a book like that when I was teaching English. You know, that would have been so helpful, a book of, sort of historical poems. So I, that was the idea, really, to, was to do it for schools. Um, so, but, you know, it's quite nice that a lot of other people have been really interested in it. Um, and it's been been selling well. So I f- so I wrote 30 anyway.
1: I feel at this time, I feel at this time, <laughs> at this time um, the listeners ears may be pricking up and saying that does sound like a useful book. Could you just t- tell us the name of your book, please, mate? We haven't said that yet.
0: It's,
2: uh, it's called 30 Angry Ghosts and it's on Amazon. So if people search for 30 Angry Ghosts, they can find it on there.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, I think that's a great moment to jump into um, thirty angry ghosts. That sounds like a fairly scary um, prospect, to be honest. Um, (laughs) uh, Get amongst it with uh, thirty angry ghosts. Now, normally, um, what happens is um, we read the poems twice, just because I think when you know you're listening to a podcast, which I say again, listeners, we're very grateful that you are listening. it's, you're obviously going to miss something on the first read so we'll go for a couple of reads and in, in, in this morning's edition we are uh, obviously very fortunate to have the author of the poem to give us I think the first read so if if you give us the first read of maybe if you want to say anything but before you read it may I mean that's up to you just introduce it or something and then hit us up and then I'll just quickly find the same poem and give the second read and then we can have a little think about what, what what's going on there.
2: Great. So yeah, this is the first poem I wrote. So this is Anne Boleyn. And it was inspired by the story that Henry VIII wrote Greensleeves, which everyone tells me he didn't write Greensleeves. And I do know that. um, But he might have told Anne Boleyn that he wrote Greensleeves. So I'm I'm going with that idea. Um, So basically, so Henry VIII telling her that he wrote Greensleeves for her. And this is her reply to him, basically, that You know, that I never wore green anyway, you silly old fool. So this is Anne Boleyn's ghost telling off Henry, basically. Green was never my colour. Red, the colour of my dress that day. Red, the dying light in the sky. Red, the blood at the birth of my children. Red, the sword so quickly brought down. Henry, most famous king of England, how proud you would be of that. But famous for what? For being fat and gaudy, a jester too clownish to be cruel. I'd rather be a witch than a fool. And what came after, dear husband of mine? Your son died too young and soon was forgotten. Our daughter, my daughter, she is the one who survived and ruled far better, far longer than you. sleeves, an idle song for an idle man. Here is Elizabeth, my child, red hair still blazing.
0: Okay. And Berlin um, by May Black. Green was never my colour, Red the colour of my dress that day, Red the dying light in the sky, Red the blood at the birth of my children, Red the sword so quickly brought down. Henry, most famous king of England, How proud you would be of that! But famous for what? For being fat and gaudy, A jester too clownish to be cruel, I'd rather be a witch than a fool. And what came after, dear husband of mine? Your son died too soon and soon was forgotten. Our daughter, my daughter, she's the one who survived and ruled far better, far longer than you. Green Greensleeves, an idle song for an idle man. Here is Elizabeth, my child, red hair still blazing.
2: Lovely.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um... I mean that that to me uh let's have a uh, uh, getting it back up here green was never my color so i mean how, how, did, did you, how do you arrive at the um the form of the poem
2: so um so like i said i was i was teaching a lot of poetry at the time um i my first course was 18th century poetry and then i did 19th century poetry so really, they ought to have come out in a very traditional form. But I think because they're all angry ghosts, it kind of went to a slightly more free verse style that, you know, I wanted to kind of get there. You know, so so the ghost is talking and they're kind of talking about their their life sometimes, but also you know why they're so angry. So this kind of slightly disjointed form came to me. But I think with the rhythms of that traditional poetry. Mm-hmm. um so so and um, I mean they're more poetic monologues I think than anything else so they're sort of to be spoken in the kind of conversational voice mm-hmm. so yeah
0: okay uh, that's actually just looking at this and thinking about it and you mentioned about um they're all angry ghosts I have uh we've got some I've got, I've got three young youngest children and we are big fans in my house of a, of a program a tv program on BBC called Ghosts have you ever seen that
2: Oh, I love it. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, there's a sort of, do you know what I mean? There's a bit of Anne Boleyn here. I'm not saying because I mean, obviously, that's a comedy. And this is this is a much more, um, in, in many ways, a much more serious kind of uh, treatment of, of it. But it's, um, it's that idea, isn't it? Of the sort of the the spirits from English history, if you like, or history generally.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a massive fan of the show. a Massive fan of um, Greg Jenner. Yeah, who does? Do you know the the podcast You're Dead to Me?
0: Oh no, I, I have heard of it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so he's featured a lot of people from history, and he really goes in depth into their lives. Um, okay. So I used a lot of that, um, a lot of those ideas when I was trying to think of the ghosts, um, because a lot of them are completely new to me yeah and all oh, horrible histories of course yeah. i mean know, yeah, that was a huge influence on me as well so yeah big fan of ghosts definitely
1: how um i just just to um to talk more generally about your writing process how do you how do you come about a poem like this do you do you draft a lot and do you do you, do you rework and rework and rework or do you sort of splurge and and hit and hope i mean I, I'm not, that's not a comment on this poem it's just the way i write things i splurge and tend to find it difficult to then go back into them you know once they're written, they tend to stay written. They don't tend to develop much beyond the original. You know, I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever gone onto a poem on day two. <laughs> they're always written on day one. If you know what I mean. What about yourself?
2: Yeah. So I mean, this one, actually, I wrote really quickly um, because it was a kind of a Facebook task. So I just sort of banged it off. Um, um, but I think, I mean, with all of the poems, they've all been edited. I think about a hundred times right, yeah. um so i went the first time i wrote because i was studying traditional poetry there were capital letters at the beginning of each line um and then i decided to get a bit modern and then i decided to get rid of all the punctuation yeah. and i put it all back in so but yeah but I'm, and major reworking as well but i write in longhand to start with um so i always i started all of them in longhand um, typed them up but yeah there, there was a lot of changes um, but probably this one less than any of them actually this one came quite naturally because I've thought about Anne Boleyn a lot over the years so see, yeah. yeah that was quite an easy one to do.
0: I think it's um, just from an historical point of view um, I, I, it's, a, it's a thought that, uh, that has only occurred to me sort of uh, relatively recently and and it's encapsulated in this, in this poem isn't it that Anne's demise brought about for reasons of Failure to realise dynastic succession through, 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 through a male actually led to Queen Elizabeth. I think a lot of people don't realise that the connection that Anne Boleyn is, is Queen Elizabeth's mother.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story and the whole sort of Tudor dynasty. But something I found out recently, I mean, of course, publishing this book of historical poems, a lot of people love to try and catch me out on historical inaccuracies, um, which bet. is yeah. kind of scary. Yeah, kind of I will
0: fun. bet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, but someone told me recently, um, that, the reason that she was killed, I don't know how true this is, but the reason that she was killed was actually that she wouldn't sign the paper to say Elizabeth was illegitimate. Um, so, you know, so Henry was so angry about having daughters um, rather than a son. and He was sort of, you know, um, desperate to say that this daughter was illegitimate. Hence, you know, she wouldn't have any chance of getting the throne. I don't know how that's true, but if if it is, I mean, that's desperately sad that she could have lived if she hadn't of um you know sort of said no i'm not giving up my daughter's chance at ruling
1: oh, I but, I, yeah i mean i
2: don't know if that go
1: on. sounds like fodder for the sequel mate <laughs>
2: <laughs> well yeah people have asked that um but i i think i'm writing a writing a historical novel now so i'm kind of going uh, very, very um deeply into that so
0: oh, yeah. I, I well i wouldn't dream of asking you too much about that but uh, could you give us an indication of the time period of your forthcoming
2: novel um so that's the 18th century so it's um sort of centering around how shakespeare was viewed in the 18th century that you know, when his popularity just plummeted um so it's mm. yeah so it's all about that so much research because i have to research shakespeare and the theater and uh yeah so that's
0: c- certainly a big a big a, a big a big a big amount to chew yeah for sure <laughs> okay mate well can we um so we've got Amberlin. so we've got just for our most Versify listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife, who was um, executed in, I guess, something like the 1530-somethings. Um, who are we going to be looking at next?
2: Uh, so next we have, um, I think, Henry VIII. So if one of you gentlemen – well, it's up to you. I mean, if one of you wants to read it first, um, you know, he's very angry. I should just tell you, he's, he's very angry – um, so if you sort of, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. try and make him sound as horrible as possible. Uh, this is one of my favourite poems. He's, he's, well, he, obviously he's such a misogynist, um, but it was, yeah, it was really fun to write. So okay. yeah, lots okay. of fury, if, if you would. Well,
0: I, I can think of someone who would be good at reading this. Do you have a copy of it, Rob? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's right in front of me, mate, yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're looking for a large bearded man.
1: I've got a, to be angry. I've got a turkey <laughs> turkey wing just out of shot here. Do, so.
0: do, you, yeah, do you know any? <laughs> yeah,
1: I'll give it the All full right. Charles Lawton. Don't worry. Okay. None of that Damien Lewis nonsense. <laughs> yeah, so I'll go. I'm going to see if I can hit the mark right between Charles Lawton and Robert Shaw in *The Man for All Seasons*. That's <laughs> perfect. Um, this is Henry VIII by May Black. Was any man more abused than I? Six wives I had, six tormentors, cruel as only women can be. The first was Catherine. Much beloved was she, but time exposed her deficiency, birthing only a girl and a host of other half-made things. And when honour demanded it, when her king demanded it, she would not let me go, but gripped with bone-thin fingers, dug her nails in deep. So when at last I struggled free, she had her pound of flesh, leaving me vulnerable, leaving England vulnerable. And so I succumbed to the charms of a witch who wooed as only a man should and soon betrayed me, leaving one more girl child to mock the royal cradle. My best hope then. Jane gave me. My best hope then. Jane gave as much love as women are able to give, and a son besides, but more on that anon. A princess next, but what is a princess without beauty? Fine jewels around the neck of an ugly girl gleam like flies upon excrement. Another Catherine, wicked, faithless strumpet, broke my royal heart, and at the end, no loving wife. But a nurse only. A woman who dreamed of another man while she still had a king in her bed. But I had my son. My heir. England was safe. I had done my part. Yet without his father's governance left to the care of wicked women and greedy ministers, he made not sixteen summers. So what happened to England's mighty throne? Taken by women. Stolen by women, illegitimate women despised by God. And now there is no part of this noble country unplundered by the ambitions of women, the universities, the government, even the church. I blame myself for men's misfortune, this plague of womankind. For now men must crawl upon their stomachs before these wanton witches, these venomous vixens, these matriarchal monsters. Oh, the pity of mankind. I pray God grant us sufficient swords and axes for them
0: all. (laughs) Strong stuff there, mate. Lovely. Beautifully read. (laughs) I enjoyed that. May, are you going to take a pass at this one?
2: Uh, Yep, can do. Okay. Henry VIII. Was any man more abused than I? Six wives I had. Six tormentors cruel as only women can be. The first was Catherine. Much beloved was she, but time exposed her deficiency, birthing only a girl and a host of other half-made things. And when honour demanded it, when her king demanded it, she would not let me go, but gripped with bone-thin fingers dug her nails in deep. So when at last I struggled free, she had her pound of flesh, leaving me vulnerable, leaving England vulnerable. And so I succumbed to the charms of a witch who wooed as only a man should, and soon betrayed me, leaving one more girl child to mock the royal cradle. My best hope, then. Jane gave as much love as women are able to give. And a son, besides. But more on that anon. A princess next. But what is a princess without beauty? Fine jewels around the neck of an ugly girl gleam like flies upon excrement. Another Catherine Wicked, faithless, strumpet, broke my royal heart. And at the end, no loving wife, but a nurse only. A woman who dreamed of another man while she still had a king in her bed. But I had my son, my heir. England was safe. I had done my part. Yet. Without his father's governance, left to the care of wicked women and greedy ministers, he made not sixteen summers. So what happened to England's mighty throne? Taken by women, stolen by women, illegitimate women, despised by God. And now there is no part of this noble country, unplundered by the ambitions of women the universities, the government, even the church. I blame myself for men's misfortune, this plague of womenkind. For now men must crawl upon their stomachs before these wanton witches, these venomous vixens, these matriarchal monsters. Oh, the pity of mankind. I pray God, God, Grant us sufficient swords and axes for them
0: all I mean that's a pretty angry poem isn't it <laughs> Do you know what i mean they are, uh you've got really,
1: angry ghosts then that's the whole
0: that's they the are jokes, angry ghosts yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> i mean i guess um yeah, I guess Henry would be pretty angry um and um and full of um yeah you've got a nice a nice range of um Invective in there. How did? did you yeah. I mean, is this kind of like? I mean, obviously, you, you know, you're a bit of an historian as well, so you've you've got a sense of what happened. Um, was there anything in this poem that sort of particularly came to you from from the sources that you'd read? I mean, I, I thinking of Shakespeare looking at Holland's head you know, and sometimes taking a phrase here and a phrase there, or, or is this more stuff that kind of you? Like all the actual specific diction you've come up with yourself
2: um I, yeah, i mean it's it's peppered with um with references from from various things i mean obviously um which I probably shouldn't have done um I did think about cutting, but there was um she had her pound of flesh, which I'm sure you recognise mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, a Shylock we- there.
2: Yeah, so Merchant of Venice, which actually um, was afterwards, but I'm hoping it was in the earlier versions of the Merchant of Venice as well. I don't know. But but yeah, so there are sort of little Shakespearean um, pieces. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I like to think most of the phrases are kind of my own, um, barring that one. But yeah, I mean, the... Uh, I'm I'm quite proud of the fine jewels around the neck of an ugly girl gleam like flies upon excrement. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, v-
0: pretty harsh. Yeah. <laughs> vivid, I, vivid, I, 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 vivid I,
1: stuff there, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh <laughs> wicked faithless strumpet I, I thought was quite a uh, quite a triplet of uh of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, what is it a philippic. Um so what what um Uh, So when you're, you know, I mean, it is interesting because you're you're, you're taking on a persona for for writing these poems. Do you, um, are you sort of like, are you trying to channel the emotion as you're writing it? Or is it more of a sort of a cerebral and and abstract activity?
2: Uh, No, I think you've hit the nail on the head then. Yeah, I mean, I was Henry VIII um, when I wrote that. I mean, that's the most fun thing of the book is that I feel so close to these 30 characters now. Um so I'm complete yeah I was completely in his um or well, my imagining of his mindset um, when I was writing that. Um so yeah so that was yeah I, I feel a really strong connection with each of the historical figures so Yeah, yeah and, and so you're kind of head. you're
0: you're spitting out these phrases as it were as you're composing it.
2: Oh yes yeah so you know and I you know I, I've I've known quite a lot about Henry Gates again so he was quite an easy one to do but yeah I couldn't I can imagine all the efforts, all these wives, to try and get a male heir, mm. and then to be followed by women. And I think she did, uh, Elizabeth did, kind of um, help to. Um, push forward feminism and you know to have had such a powerful queen mm. um so yeah i think he would be absolutely um outraged about that so yeah I, so that's fun i think
0: i think i think I, I, my favorite is probably the I, I call it the penultimate stanza um the one that begins for now men must crawl upon their stomachs <laughs> little biblical reference apt biblical reference uh, before these <laughs> wanton witches venomous vixens matriarchal monsters it um, covers a lot of bases there in terms of his, um, his, as you say, misogyny and his uh, his anger and, and hatred of women.
2: Yeah, that, that was great fun to write. That was, um, that was quite a late addition to the poem. So like I said, I did um, edit these poems about 100 times, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I really wanted a more angry ending. Uh, and I think this is where the kind of techniques of poetry are so helpful. Um, you know, that I wanted to get, um, alliteration with the wanton witches and the venomous vixens. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think when you think, Oh, yes, I want it to rhyme or want it to be alliterative. The phrase is just kind of leap in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I'm quite quite proud of the alliteration of those but they do also seem to be the right words as well yeah but i used i think because i i was thinking oh I want this to be used in high schools you know i really sort of beefed up on the alliteration and the you know the techniques the assonance so yeah but people have told me i've i've been performing them out with with various people and they say, you know, they're really fun to read because of those sort of, you know, effects.
1: Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. So what's the what's the progress of the book so far in terms of schools? Is it being, is it is it got an uptake in, in schools? Is that is that something that's happening or is it something that's sort of an ambition at this point?
2: Well, I kind of always wanted to do that a little bit later down the line. Um, so I started off, I did a, a pub gig um to start with and it was one of those setups where you know basically everyone in the audience i kind of knew and and the book launch as well so i did it with kind of poetry lovers and i've been getting my confidence so that then when i hopefully hit the high schools i'll be really sort of ready to go um so yeah i did a women's institute um meeting recently uh, and that was brilliant they you know they really took to it. gosh and they didn't half know their history yeah. they knew a lot more than me um <laughs> so yes yeah, but yeah, my next thing is schools i i went into a primary school which wasn't ideal because i couldn't use these poems i had to use other poems but i judged their poetry um well they weren't poetry readings because they'd all learnt them by heart but but yes basically i've started making inroads with with high schools so hope hopefully do a lot more of that
0: it's an interesting idea this idea of 30 ghosts and it seems like um, I mean this in a very positive way it seems like an obvious idea and yeah I'm kind of struggling to think about where where this has done before I suppose Caroline Ann Duffy did something a bit like it didn't she with um, uh, The World's Wife and she talked about uh, some female persona poems but this sort of idea of these angry ghosts, thirty angry ghosts, um, it's a great idea. It's a great idea, and and, you, and 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 also the the interesting thing about this is it's quite wide ranging in terms of it's not they're not all British, are they? They're not all English poems. So
1: I don't have the book. I've only got the four that got sent through. So who 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 are the sort of outliers in terms of the names of the of the ghosts? Who have we got in the the contents
0: list there?
2: Um. So we have we've got, got. So uh, I'll uh, so, I'll hit you up. Oh, go on. You
0: could do it. Oh, right. mate. Yeah, no, no, mate, mate, no, it would be better hearing it from you, mate. It would be better hearing it from you.
2: Uh, well, I'm, I'm just impressed you got the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I started off, they're all kind of English, well, and Greek. Um, so uh, I've always been a massive fan of the Greeks ever since my wonderful classics teacher in A-level. So, yeah, so I had sort of Helen of Troy, Agamemnon, um, Julius Caesar, well, Roman uh, and, then, and then I had the English ones Henry VIII and then I had an idea um, of doing at least one from every continent um, so the more outlying ones so, well, Tutankhamen, although he's fairly familiar, uh, I thought well, we need to do Asia, so I did Genghis Khan and also the only female um, emperor, uh, female emperor oh gosh, what's the word? yeah <laughs> No, the only female empress, um, which is, now it's hard to pronounce, Wu Zetian, I think it is. Oh, oh.
0: Um,
2: So that was, so China, so China Asia, uh, and then Africa, I did, uh, well, this is from the brilliant Greg Jenner um, show, The You're Dead to Me. Uh, so the richest person who ever lived, according to a lot of people, uh, was someone called Mansa Musa. Oh, yeah. Have either of you come across Mansa Musa? Rings a bell. Yeah, so a lot by by quite a few people, they calculated him to be the richest person who ever lived, uh, and he was from Mali in Africa, which is you know which is quite nice. So I had him um, from Africa, and also his predecessor Abu Bakar from Africa, and the hardest continent, really tough continent, was South America. I couldn't think of anyone.
1: Ayahualpa. You know, Good or bad? So who was that? Ayahuatl was the, um, you know, the last emperor that got killed by Cortez, I think. I was just a guessing. Was that who you had? You had somebody else? Carry on.
2: Sorry, is that in South, South America? Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. The king of the Az- yeah. oh. last Aztec emperor, yeah. Ah.
2: Um, but is that not Central America?
1: Oh, I suppose it is. You're right, yeah. Uh,
2: but anyway, so I really struggled. All I could think of was um, Eva Peron. But I think it's quite disrespectful to do very modern people. Um, you know, so I didn't want to do her. So, but in tell the that to Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> uh, but um, uh, but so I, I found this um, the Brazilian equivalent of Joan of Arc, um, who is called uh, Maria Kitteria. Mm. and it's a brilliant story. I and mean, I'd have never come across it if I hadn't have decided to do someone from every continent. Um and Maria Quitteria, so she's a woman who fought for Brazilian independence. Uh and the lovely thing about well, it's not lovely at all, really, but she so she dressed up as a man and then she was betrayed by her own father, who told the authorities, uh, you know, because obviously women weren't allowed to fight then. And the brilliant thing is she was so good, she was such a good soldier that they let her fight anyway. So, so the poem there is, is a kind of, is addressed to her father, sort of, Yabu sucks to you, they let me fight. Uh, and then when she, when she fights after, after her father's betrayed her, so before she's very sort of, you know, I'm kind of doing this for you, dad. And then when he betrays her, she's like, imagines all the people that she shoots as her, her, her father. Um, so yeah, so that, that was a really, I really enjoyed writing that, and I'd never have heard of Maria Kitteria if I hadn't have written the book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so she was a really fun discovery. Have either of you heard of Maria Kitteria? Never.
0: I, I had. I have not. That's a new one. No. Yeah. No.
2: Well, no one has, but she's. You know, she's quite a big deal in Brazil.
0: Are we going to do her her, her poem next, or what, what? What's our next poem? You call it, mate.
2: Um, well, we could. It is one of my favourite ones, actually. Um, okay. I mean, the other two I planned was the Unknown Soldier, which is a is quite a sad one, but a lot of people say that's their favourite. Okay, let's let's, uh, let's, let's do sh- that
0: because that, that one I think we'll have as well. So if that's one of the ones I do I've have that one too,
2: yeah. to do, let's do that one. Um, yeah. So so he's uh, so he's he's more sort of melancholic than angry. Um, I tend to do him in a. Um, Oh, gosh. Cockney accent. But sometimes my cockney accent doesn't really work. So I don't know whether I'll do that to say.
0: Go for it. <laughs> you, 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 you go first and I'll go second.
2: Really? Yeah. OK. So, yeah, slightly more melancholic on this one. And I just, yeah, just as an introduction. Um, so the White Feather campaign that women in the First World War um, found men that they thought were cowards, so they would give them white feathers um, to try and persuade them to go to fight. So the idea is that he's this um boy's underage and he's given all these white feathers by women. And that kind of shames him into signing up, even though he's underage. Um, and then that he dies uh, as fighting. And then he's the person that is chosen as the unknown soldier. So it's, it's basically telling a sort of ordinary kind of lad um, felt pressured to sign up. And then that that was his fate. So yeah, and this kind of makes it has made me cry actually reading this. Um, so yeah, I, I find find this one probably the most moving. Right, the unknown soldier. First time it happened, I were in the bakers. Old lady takes some white feather out of her shopping basket, pins it on my jacket. I thought she were two penny short of a Three days later, outside the church, woman comes over, grabs me by the elbow, same thing happens. Then I see Polly, great blue eyes, shiny like marbles, hair curled up round her face, all neat like a film star. What's it for? I say. Cowardice, she say, then turned tail to stand between the vicar and her auntie Joan. I got 14 feathers in all, kept them under me mattress where mum wouldn't find them. One night, I dreamed they turned into a big white bird that snatched me up in its talons and flew me all the way to France. First German I killed nearly puked my guts up. And then I did when Jono slapped me on the back. Well done, he say. Congratulations. And all that. Two days later, Jono got half his face blown off, so he could see right to the bone. Then Billy Flowers got the rot-so bag, they sawed his leg off up past the knee, and Harry, who could whistle God Save the King through one nostril, Harry got shot to rags on the wire. Soon the order came to attack, and I was running full pelt across no-man's land. Men collapsing all round like sacks of flour. Not me, though. I kept going. Through the mud, through the wire, slipping and sliding and waving the gun. I was thinking of mum. And Polly, too. When it bit me. Just a sting, then a scorch and a burn. And then the earth rose up to meet me. Smacked me round the face. And that were it for me. Except it weren't. Two years later, I was scraped up, boxed up, carted off to London, paraded through the streets. They took me to a church, so big it could have swallowed St Mary's whole, and fifty more churches besides. The king was there, honest truth, and women, loads of women. Not mum though, not with her leg, but Polly was there, crying real pretty. Into
0: a little lacy Yankee that are then big old marble eyes. OK, <clears throat> the unknown soldier. Shall I try an accent? First time it happened I were in the baker's. Old lady takes a white feather out of her shopping basket, pins it on me jacket. I thought she were two pennies short of a sixpence. Three days later, outside the church, woman comes over, grabs me by the elbow, same thing happens. Then I see Polly, great blue eyes, shiny like marbles, hair curled up round her face, all neat like a film star. "'What's it for?' I say. "'Cowardice,' she say, then turned tail to stand between the vicar and her auntie Joan. "'I got fourteen feathers in all, kept them under me mattress where Mum wouldn't find them. One night I dreamt they turned into a big white bird that snatched me up in its talons and flew me all the way to France.' First German I killed, I nearly puked me guts up and then I did when Jono slapped me on the back. Well done, he said, congratulations and all that. Two days later, Jono got half his face blown off so you could see right to the bone. Then Billy Flowers got the rot so bad, they sawed his leg off up past the knee. And Harry, you could whistle God save the king through one nostril. Harry got shot to rags on the wire. Soon the order came to attack and I was running full pelt across no man's land, men collapsing all around like sacks of flour. Not me though, I kept going, through the mud, through the wire, slipping and sliding and waving me gun. I was thinking of mum and Polly too, when it bit me, just a sting, then a scorch and a burn, and then the earth rose up to meet me, smacked me round the face. And that were it for me. Except it weren't. Two years later I was scraped up, Boxed up, carted off to London, paraded through the streets. They took me to a church so big it could have swallowed St Mary's Hull and 50 more churches besides. The King was there, honest truth, and women, lots and loads of women. Not Mum, though, not with her leg. But Polly was there, crying real pretty into her little lacy hanky out of them big old marble eyes. Hey, so you did the accent, well done. <laughs> I'd <would> say spotterly. <laughs> um that's a, that's a great idea. Great idea for a poem. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, really good. That's my favourite of the three so far, yeah.
2: Yeah, a lot, a lot of people connect with that. Um and you know, and obviously there's a lot of influence there from the war poets and, you know, sort of trying to capture the horror of the trenches. Um I mean it's it's amazing, you know, the war poetry is just so it just you know it just takes you right there to the trenches, um, you know Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, and so I kind of tried to get into that that um, frame of mind, and it was quite easy because of mm. reading. I that mean, sort of
0: thing. Uh, one thing I notice about this tonally is that it's not really. I mean, the anger, if anger there is, is much much more implicit and much less. Um, you know it's 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 it doesn't really have an ang- it has an angry tone but it's a different type of anger to the to the Amberlynn and the Henry VIII ones
2: yeah absolutely um so uh yeah people have said that a couple of people i i had a couple of full star reviews and they said oh, there's was it 28 angry and sort of two sort of fit up ones uh but yeah i i think it is a more subtle anger that you know his life was snatched away from him and then but they use him as this kind of way to arguably to celebrate w- war so it's kind of it's angry in that way but yeah it's not as attacking as some i mean like the shakespeare ones really attacking uh henry 8 ones really attacking so yeah they they do vary just in
0: for way. our um our, our listeners who may not be familiar with the story of the unknown soldier would you like to just say a little bit of context around that what we're talking about here
2: yeah so i mean a lot of countries have have their own versions of it um and actually he's um, he's normally known as the Unknown Warrior, um, but I grew up thinking of him as the Unknown Soldier, and I, I think a lot of other people do. But basically, um, so there were a lot of unidentified people found after the First World War, and they wanted to to recognise their their contribution to the war. Um, so the idea came that they would choose one of these one of these unidentifiable bodies to to honour and to take him to Westminster Abbey and to treat as if he was a kind of fallen king or you know something like that to represent all the all the soldiers that couldn't be identified and represent all the soldiers that fell anyway, so yeah, so they made a big deal of him and you know like I say treated him like royalty, even though he was probably um, quite an ordinary soldier um so yeah that's that's where the idea comes from. But I, I do worry a bit about it. I think, is it respectful enough of, you know, of this sort of national icon? Um. But but I hope it is. I mean, pe- people have told me that they, you know, that they find a connection with him through it. And as such, kind of do kind of remember people who did fight in that war. So, but certainly it is meant to be a poem of... um. You know, respect. Yeah, I I don't think
0: or, there's or any I, uh, issue there that it is in any way, shape, or form um, disrespectful. Quite the opposite, you know. It's uh, giving the unknown soldier a, a voice uh, and a voice in your in your book. I was just thinking again because I was I sort of I was I was stumbling towards a question earlier about this idea about ghosts because it's such a compelling idea. And of course, my reference points I talked about the TV program Ghosts, which we both agreed we we enjoyed. Um, and i'm thinking because i'm just i'm just interested in like having written this book and obviously having been immersed in this idea and this topic which has got a sort of um a slightly a slightly metaphysical overtones of sort of bringing back the spirits from the past and so on or hearing these voices i just wondered if you were um if you had in your mind any other uh, like things that deal with this idea about hearing the voices of, of ghosts from the past and sort of whether it because i'm the, as i'm sort of trying to think about it more and more i'm sort of thinking well i mean i'm not scholarly enough to be able to say what happens in dante but i know that he goes and meets the ghosts of various figures and stuff so what i'm saying is it's it's, a, it's an idea with a quite a long pedigree i've never seen it realized in quite this way in a way almost on other than the program ghosts which is sort of lightweight bbc comedy so just wondering if you've if you've got sort of other influences or sort of things in in the background that that might have led you towards this sort of um this this concept you know straightforward concept but quite a high concept and obviously quite a powerful one um
2: it's interesting i mean i don't believe in ghosts myself um although it's yeah, I don't believe in ghosts, but I've always felt a really strong connection with dead people, um, more than living people, which is strange. But I remember when I was young, I had a picture of John Lennon on, on my wall. Um, and I, I kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of I've not talked to him, but I felt very connected to him. Um, he, I don't know. There probably is a small part of me that does believe in an afterlife. Um, but you know, like when Meatloaf died recently, I mean, I've never really listened to the music of Meatloaf, but something about someone dying to me makes me feel closer to them. Um, which, which is very odd. But, um, can I read you the, um, the thing I put right at the start? Because I'm, I'm not a spiritual person at all, but my husband is. We were talking about ghosts, um, and it doesn't really pan out scientifically, but I, I put this right at the start to sort of open the door to possibly believing in ghosts. Um, so the idea is, um, so like I say, this is right at the start of the book. So if you think about anger, um, it produces energy, you know, in a, in a way. You sort of feel very strong and powerful when you're, when you're angry. Um, so it says, anger in its extremity produces vast amounts of energy. Death cannot destroy energy; it merely takes on a new form. So scientifically, you know, you can't get rid of energy. Um, so yeah, so the idea that if if someone died when they were very angry, or, or you know, if there was a lot of anger in them. Um, for instance, Julius Caesar, or someone that was killed in that way, that that anger, um, angry energy, could kind of exist in a way. Um, so yeah, so that I, I quite like that. That was my husband's argument when I said, "Oh, I don't think ghosts exist," and I found that quite an interesting, um, yeah, interesting thought.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's. Um... Yeah, I mean, similarly, I mean, I, I'm not going to uh, sit here and uh, suggest that, that ghosts exist, but well, but but I, w- I, w- I think historically, you know, that idea of some kind of energy is, uh, and, and it has always been linked, hasn't it, traditionally, when you uh, hear all these ghost stories, there's always been a, a some sort of incident or some sort of uh, catalogue of incidents that have led to the person being, charged with uh, with anger in some way or resentment or vengeful uh emotions so that would be consistent at least with the um kind of cultural history of uh, the idea of ghosts um, <laughs> you're from east anglia or at least you live in east anglia i imagine there's a few inns and pubs with a few ghost legends up there
2: yeah absolutely yeah i was born in norwich i live in ipswich now but yeah it's a, it's a very haunted area of england um i think
0: <laughs> and you've been um if not, if not, if not tuning into the, uh, to, the um, to the to the to the to the ghosts, at least using them as inspiration for.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah. even I mean, I kind of like to believe in ghosts. I think there is part of me that does. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's such a like you said, it's such a part of our culture, um, you know, that's in, in literature, particularly. But everywhere it's, you know, it's it's such an important concept to us, I think.
0: Thirty Angry Ghosts by May Black is available on Amazon. Um, thank you very much, um, May, for joining us on the pod this morning. Um, just before we uh, say uh, goodbye, um, I just wanted to ask you actually: Is that because you, 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 I know you're researching this this Shakespeare book? Is there anything um, else that you've been reading recently that you can bring to a little section we normally have at the end of our pod called Recommendation Station? be interesting. I'm sorry to put you on the spot here. Um, if somebody asked me to recommend something off, off the top of my head i'd be i'd be very very desperate you do it to me every episode dan and i just i, I, I do it to you every episode although at least really you blame. at least you know it's coming rob yeah um i just i thought i'd throw it in we can always edit it out but um is there anything you've got for um our, our listeners may in terms of um recent things you've been reading
2: um well i've like i say a lot of research so uh there was a there's a biography of david garrick um, I thought was brilliant. Uh, I can't remember the name. Oh, and um, Jean Benetti, I think. Um so if anyone's interested in in sort of uh theatre and the development of theatre, particularly with reference to Shakespeare, I definitely recommend that um that biography of David Garrick.
0: Okay, that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm 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 very interested in um in your new in your new book. You've got some Shakespearean connections up there because um W- w- one of the things we've talked about on the pod before is one of um Shakespeare's actors once Morris danced Morris, to Morris Norwich. danced the, the nine-day Nor- wonder to Norwich.
1: yeah oh yes Will yeah. Kemp yeah. <laughs> there's a stat there's a statue of Will Kemp in uh, the park in Norwich as I recall when I went up there yeah doing it in his in his jester's finery
2: well sticking with David Garrick um I don't know how much you know about him but his uh he kind of reworked um acting you know it was all very formal in the 18th century you know they had sort of certain poses for different emotions and he kind of swept that all aside with his portrayal of richard iii um i don't i'm probably preaching to the choir here but so you know it was it was a kind of naturalistic style of acting and I'm very proud because I live in Ipswich that actually it wasn't debuted in London. It was actually debuted in Ipswich. So this this groundbreaking performance um, actually happened in, in Ipswich.
1: So he was the sort of Marlon Brando of his day.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he really, you know, they had all these sort of books about how exactly to stand if you were angry or if you were upset. And, you know, it was all about the voice, but it was very sort of stiff portrayals of of the characters. But yeah, he you know, he really brought them to life.
0: Okay. David Garrick. Well, well thank you, um, once again, listener, for joining us on this bonus episode of Versifying English uh was it literature podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. Yep thank you very thanks very much dan and and thanks
1: to may yeah and good luck with your book may it sounds uh, it sounds like it would do very well in schools i'd have thought yeah. and uh, they are fun to read and i'd I have thought with um, in schools not just with uh, in english classes but in drama classes as well as you say they're 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 actually performance pieces aren't they and particularly that last one i can imagine people having quite a lot of fun with that you know giving it the, the full well, the Cockney accent for one thing, but you know the emotion of that. You know, I'd have thought they'd do very well in drama, in drama groups, in in schools as well as English groups and history. You know, it's a sort of mix of three different things, isn't it? It's history, it's English, and it's and it's performance. You know, I thought they'd, I'd have thought it'd be doing very well. So good luck with it, anyway. And very nice to meet you. Yep,
2: yeah, and yourself.
0: Thank you, May, um, and thank you, listener. And see you next time on the Versify and History Podcast.